you would turn in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 14, for our message this morning, unfathomable love. If you were an author looking to describe something in a book you were writing, how would you help someone know how to picture it? You know, we as humans aren't all that great at picturing the measurements that we use. If I was to tell you today that something was about 360 feet big, what would you envision? But if I told you it was about the size of a football field, we would all nod along in agreement. You see, most authors use the natural world to compare things as they write so we can understand their size and their scale. Many writers will use size comparisons in their books, authors throughout the ages, and one data analyst, his name was Colin Morris, set about to graph the usage of these words throughout literature from the 1800s all the way up to the present day. He tracked the phrase using Google Books, the size of blank, to see what it was in modern literature that we were comparing things to the most. And how did that change over time? For example, folks used to always write in books that something was about the size of a shilling, but they don't use those in England anymore, so that phased out. The, the game of basketball didn't exist in most of the 1800s, and so that comparison gained ground in the 1900s. But overall, Morris found that items from the natural world have continued to de decline as our comparisons to sports analogies continued to rise. We like to compare things to sports. But the undisputed champion across the centuries of, from the 1800s to the 2000s of an item by which authors used to help us understand how large something was, the P, over and over again. Some 30,000 more appearances and even the next highest frequency of a walnut the most compared objects in all of literature, the same in the 1800s as it was in the 2000s. The P reigns as champion. What works, however, for modern literature is not always that helpful in theology. You see, when we go looking for ways to describe and to understand God, we can't always look to our world. Jesus certainly helps us with agrarian analogies and metaphors and uh, mustard seeds and fig trees. But when it comes to knowing God, to understanding what God is like, we have so often made the mistake of envisioning or picturing the characteristics about ourselves or our experience and envisioning God to be like that only a little bit better or greater or grander. But we learn what God is like not from our experience, but by looking to who God is. We won't discover what God's love is like by looking at ourselves. No, we learn what love is by looking at God. In our text this morning, this prayer in the, to the church at Ephesus, Paul is passionately trying to communicate something for which no comparison or dimension or its unit of measure can possibly describe in full. He wants us to know, to comprehend, to grasp the love of Christ. And Paul is convinced 
That if we can have the power of God's spirit in our inner being, by God's strength, we can come to know something that is unknowable. We can come to experience something that is so beyond us. We can discover something that we cannot measure or even comprehend. And so Paul prays this prayer from prison, one of the few prison prayers we have of Paul. He breaks into this prayer in the midst of a letter to the church at Ephesus that circulated around the region, wanting them to know this love of Christ. In the first half of this letter, you'll remember that Paul is talking about the greatness of who God is to us the riches of our inheritance, of this household of God that we've become a part of. He spells out this great work of Christ in chapter one, the redeeming blood of Jesus. When in chapter two, he begins to describe the Christ who has proclaimed peace to us who were far off, that we have been brought near, that through Christ, all of us have access in one spirit to the Father. He is writing all of this deep and abiding language about our new found faith in Jesus to this young church in Ephesus. That there's no separation from Jew and Gentile, that we're all citizens of the household of God with Jesus as the cornerstone. He goes on to say that in Christ, this whole structure is being joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And as you read the book of Ephesians, you can feel him getting more and more excited. I envision him pacing back and forth in his jail cell in Rome from which he most likely writes this letter. As someone beside him pins the word, a scribe or amanuensis who writes in ink what he is speaking in words. And as the the tension grows, his excitement grows as he tells about all that he himself has grasped and experienced in Jesus. The pages begin to fill up until right in the middle. Whether he had intended to pray or not in the middle of this discourse, it's not clear, but Paul bursts into prayer in the middle of his letter. Now the scriptures describe a whole host of ways that we can pray. Postures that are appropriate for prayer. The more usual posture in Jewish and early Christian prayer was standing. To stand before God in prayer and reverence and in the reality that this is an important and holy moment. But kneeling was not uncommon either. And making this point, Paul tells us in chapter 3 verse 14 that in this moment of excitement about all that Jesus has done, in this moment of telling them about what he has learned about God, Paul falls to his knees, he bows before God and begins to pray. He's no longer pacing back and forth in the quarters of his imprisonment, dictating this letter. He's stopped in his tracks. He's overwhelmed by the love of God, even as he shares it with them. And so falling to his knees, he shares this prayer for them and for every church since. And before this God, he says, the one from whom every family in heaven and on earth gets its name, the creator of everyone, the one who saved us and has given us all a new name, his name, Christian, the name which every family receives from him. Paul speaks passionately in prayer as his words are meticulously penned. I pray that you, being rooted 
and established in love may have power to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ. His measurements added one after another, helping to communicate to us the vastness of this immense love that Paul knows from God. I want you to know, he says, this love that surpasses knowledge. See, Paul writes not as someone who is making an intellectual argument, who is telling you this new theology that he heard about. He doesn't write as someone trying to give you plans or or next steps for living. He writes as someone who has a rich and abiding experience with God himself through Jesus. He writes about a love, not that he's heard of, but a love that he knows because he's lived it. He has learned, Paul has, that this love of God is sufficient for every need, that it's worthy of his entire devotion. And Paul prays this for these believers and for you and for me, because he knows that if we really understood God's love, we wouldn't love our sin quite so much. Today, your bulletin this morning shares some of our seniors here. It reminds us that it's graduation season. Maybe you've been to one or seven in the last week or two. (laughs) All across the world, students will be awarded a degree or diploma. Seems we do that for every grade these days, but an acknowledgement that they have completed a program. But if you have entered the Christian life thinking that such an occasion is around the corner or that upon accepting Jesus' love for you, you have graduated into something. You're mistaken. See, the prayer of Paul combines a few curious phrases, really. He, He tells us that this love of Christ surpasses all knowledge, and yet he prays that we might know it. And clearly, he doesn't mean that if we accurately measured out the four dimensions of God's love that he mentions here that we might be able to know something precisely or recreate it exactly. But he is suggesting in some way that that Christians pursue the knowledge of something unknowable. He's inviting us to to take hold of a, a lifelong task, not one that we will get a certificate or a diploma for when we have attained it, but a journey with Christ that invites us to know over and over again, to be rooted and rooted again, to be grounded on a firm foundation in this one thing, the love of God that is wide and deep and long and high. Amelia Hepworth was searching for her own literary comparison, I suspect, when she wrote a popular children's book that sits on the shelf at our house. She's looking to describe the love of a a parent and their children. The book depicts a mother bear gazing at the sky and saying to her cub, I love you to the moon and back. A way to quantify some kind of distance. That seems really far if you're a child, doesn't it? The book made it into our bedtime routine a few months ago. I had read it one night to our daughter, who's about three, and just before telling her goodnight, 
I leaned in after we had read that book together and I thought the phrase was appropriate. Help her understand just how deep my love is for her. I leaned our face, my face close to hers, looked her in the eye and said, I love you to the moon and back. And she looked back at me and said, no. You love me right here. You see, for all we can say or think or admire about the vastness of the love of God, Paul does not let us stay in the abstract. He does not let us stay in the beyond. He doesn't let us pray and profess the immense vastness of God's love for us to the moon and back. He says, I want you to know this love so that you may be filled so that you may love right here. You see, the love of God Paul wants you to take hold of is not just so that you can know about God, but that God's love might be in you. And so as we measure out the love of God this morning, as we're invited in Paul's prayer to observe and behold the vastness and immenseness of that love, we also are called to take stock, to make measure of the love that is in us today. And we are invited to let our love become as much as we can more like God's love. I'll never be all knowing or all powerful or all sufficient, but God says he is love and that we can have that same love in us if we'll look to him to learn what love is like. And so Paul says, I pray that you may know what is the breadth of God's love. And the church fathers heard in that word, the breadth that God's love had this wide extent that it reached to all kinds of people. The ultimate cause of failure for the Jews was that they never quite grasped that particular dimension of God's love, the breadth of the thing. They thought that salvation only went to a, a certain reasonable extent, you know, our people. They didn't know that those whose eyes would be opened by the Spirit like Paul's were before after he, a Hebrew of Hebrews, was blinded by that light, having once held that same exclusive view as other Jews, that he came to see that, that that narrow dimension that they were stuck in was altogether wrong. And that in Christ Jesus, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, barbarian or Scythian, bond or free. And today, all around the world, in every country and on every continent, Though differing in color and culture and background in almost everything, men and women will meet together and worship in the breadth of God's love for all creation. You see, the love of God is transnational. It's transcultural. It crosses every boundary you can place in front of it. It manifests itself in every language and transmits itself into every culture despite our best efforts to mess it up because that is the breadth of God's love. As we begin to measure out the limitless dimensions of God's love, as we reflect on the breadth of his love for all people, I wonder today, what is the breadth of your love? See, we love to measure out God's grace in our proportions. To assume that God's love is handed out in our categories. We're willing to love those who are like us I'll love anybody who I agree with. 
But if the breadth of your love for the world matches the breadth of your party or your group or your kind, you've missed the love of God because its breadth is bigger than that. And every time we miss the breadth of God and fail to embody that breadth, we forfeit the witness God has given us in the world that they will know who we are. They will know his love because they see it in us. And worse, sometimes the breadth of our love extends only to our friends, but turns away our enemies as if we were not once enemies of God who has now called us friend. God's love stretches wide. And I wonder today, what is the width of your love? The second thing Paul tells us is that he wants us to know the length of God's love. The scriptures remind us that the love of Christ does not begin with the Roman calendar, but is a love that began in eternity and will remain for eternity. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. His steadfast love endures forever, the Psalms say. You see, the length of God's love is one unbroken line and it never changes. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said that we, we tend to think at times that God has forgotten us, that he has left us. When troubles or problems or, or trials come, we meet difficulties or disappointments, we tend to ask, where is his love? And the answer is that it's there. It's always there. The fault is in us. We can't see it because we have not meditated upon it. We haven't realized its eternal character, that its length knows no bounds, that it was in the beginning and will be in glory. We have not grasped the dimensions of the length of God's love. That's why the Apostle Paul expresses these truths in Romans 8 when he says, I'm persuaded that neither death nor life, angels or demons or powers, things present or things to come, height or depth, nor any creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ. Because it's that long, and I wonder today, if God's love is long enough to wait for the prodigal son and long enough to reach him when he returns, if God's love in the scriptures is long-suffering, patient with you and with me, how long is the love that others know in you? Does it take long for people to reach the end of your love? And third thing Paul wants us to know is the height of how high God's love is. It's as high as the vast distance between the highest heavens and the lowest of earth. As he writes in Philippians, the, the God who was equal with God, made himself nothing, came down from the, the highest of highs down to the, the lowest of earth to announce that he will one day be exalted and the dead in Christ shall rise to the heights with him. So high is God's love that he can be over all things and before all things and in all things and make himself low enough to find you wherever you may be. That's how high the love of God is. And if God's love moves from, from high to low, can yours be content staying still? If God's love is most concerned with lifting the lowly, does your love need a, a new posture or a new stance? 
What is the height of your love, the love of God that he has so gifted you with? And is it willing to be made low with him? And is it willing to help others rise with him? Fourth dimension Paul offers us about God's love is the depth. And how deep is the Father's love for us? But depth as a dimension is maybe a little bit harder to understand. I wonder if I asked you today, how do you measure depth? You see, depth in photography refers to the range of distance in a picture that appears acceptably sharp. Depth in sports might refer to the number of of players on your bench who can be subbed in without any level of talent being lost. Depth can refer to uh, intellectual complexity or the range of one's understanding about a topic. In the field of oceanography, one of the major areas is to measure the depth of the ocean. You see, before the development of echo sounding, Boatmen used what's called a lead line or a sounding line to measure the depth of the ocean. A sounding line refers to a a length of rope that would have some sort of plummet weight on the end. And so a leadsman would have a long rope with that weight on the end and they would cast it over the boat and, and let it touch the bottom, the ocean floor to measure the length. And they would pull it up to see how long it was from the boat down to the bottom. And of course, they got tired of getting wet. And so there would be marks along the line, knots tied in the rope or pieces of leather attached along the way. These marks were called fathom points. The points are the points not marked on the line and between each of those marks are called fathoms. And the word fathom comes from an old Norse word that means outstretched arms. And so the the boatman would throw that line over the edge of the boat and he began to pull it up and he would count the fathoms by his outstretched arms as he pulled the rope in one at a time, one fathom after another to know and to measure how deep the ocean is. A fathom would come to be standardized is about six feet long, the average distance between one man's outstretched arms as he held up the line. Before echo sounding, this method meant that there was only so much water that could be measured because you only have so much rope to drop in. Water near the coast that was less than 100 fathoms was considered a level not too deep to be fathomed. The area offshore beyond a hundred fathoms was considered water too deep to be fathomed. I don't know what methods you employ to measure out the love of God for you and for the world. But Paul's prayer is that you would come to know 
by a true and ongoing experience with the risen Christ that the the love of God, no matter what length of rope you happen to have in hand, is too deep to be fathomed. And we Christians are called together with all the Lord's holy people, he says, to to venture out into the vast waters of God's love and to to cast a line over the side and to discover that No matter what length of rope or how wide our arms or how much we try, no number of fathoms could possibly convey what is the depth of the unfathomable love of God. But he wants you to know it for yourself, to feel the line keep floating and never reach the bottom because God's love is wide enough to reach the whole world and beyond. It's long enough to stretch from eternity to eternity. It's high enough to raise both Jew and Gentile alike, and it is deep enough to rescue all people from the depths of sin. And I want you to know this love, Paul says, because then you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. If we pay only lip service to God's love this morning, if we ascribe to God whatever glimpse of love we think we have experienced in this world, or if we allow ourselves to simply muddle through the Christian life, just sort of aware of the fact that God loves us, we will never understand the measure of his love and it will never be in us. If we had all the rope that was ever made and all the arms that ever lived, we would still not exhaust the width and length and height and depth of God's love. But when we look to the cross, when we look to outstretched arms that have themselves measured for us the immensity of God's love, we discover Arms that teach us just how wide and how high and how deep is the love of God. As we look up to the height of the cross and see his arms stretched wide and see how long he anguishes on your behalf, we can see the depth of his love for us so that we may never stop looking at the very one whose outstretched arms reveal a love that is without end. And as the power of the Spirit helps us to measure what is the immeasurable love of God. May we too be filled with that love. And may we love right here. Let's pray. Father, we come this morning in awe of your love, overwhelmed by the vastness of it, consumed by the immense love that you have poured out on us. When we were far, you brought us near. When we were enemies, you called us friends. Father, freely we have received this love. We pray today that freely we would give. May we be rooted and grounded in this love so that all the world will know your love through us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.